0: Hello, my name is Arsene Wenger. You are listening to the Tuesday Club. This is the Arsenal podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Alan Davis, you're listening to The Tuesday Club, this is the Arsenal podcast, and I've got Arsene Wenger with me this morning. How are you, Arsene? I'm well, thank you, I hope you too. I am very well, it's uh, lovely to see you. Are you at home today?
0: I'm at home today, yes.
1: I can see, uh, I'm looking at your background, I can spot a framed shirt, a a little trophy there. That's
0: a framed shirt of my 50th birthday.
1: Oh wow, wonderful. And a a little bit of memorabilia around the place, mainly red and white, Yes. Now, you've joined us today. We're grateful for your time to talk about your autobiography, My Life in uh, in Red and White. We're all Arsenal fans on the Tuesday Club, as you may know, so we will obsess, if you don't mind, with those years. But I'm interested, you write quite movingly at the beginning of the book about your childhood and your parents and your. you had an older brother who was five years older and an older sister who was ten years older and this and a little village with three blacksmiths and dominated by horses. I wonder if it was a, a quiet place, if it was a still environment that you grew up in.
0: No, it's because I grew up in a little uh, bistro, what you call a little pub here, you know. Uh, there were always people uh, inside who talked about uh, football. Which was the local headquarters of a football club. And uh, so, quite no, but the, the, the rhythm of the village was dominated by uh, religion, you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, uh, so it was Christmas, Easter, and all uh, in between the processions. And uh, the, 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 the priest was the king of the village, you know. And uh, at, at that time, religion was very dominant. And uh, for the rest, it was an agricultural. Uh, village where you could say uh, 90% of people were agricultures, you know, and uh, but it was uh, at the time you had no tractors, it was the horses mm-hmm. that uh, were the strong faces in, in, in the job on a daily basis and uh, the physical strength was vital, you know, how hard can you work physically and that changed uh, in the 60s. But uh, my childhood was straight after the Second World War in 1949. And my grandfather couldn't speak French, but we were French. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, we spoke Alsatian at home. Uh, It's a little dialect that is uh, closer to German than to French. So I learned French at school.
1: It's interesting. It's it's an area of France that we learned about here in history books, Alsace and Alsace-Lorraine. Yeah. And uh, your father was caught up in the horror of the Second World War, isn't he? with the and the Yes being turned by the Germans. But you say in the book that he never spoke about that. He never spoke about those never. times.
0: No. I uh, couldn't understand why, because he, he was on the Russian front with the Germans, you know, because uh, uh, at the end of the uh, Second World War, uh were incorporated by force, the uh, territories were very, very occupied and uh, so my father from 43 to 45 was a malgrenou that means he was french but the uh, fighting for the germans against the russian
1: extraordinary and your mother left at home with your sister running around quite small and a very uh, small baby boy your older brother yes did she talk about those times to you
0: not really, you know. Uh, I don't know why. In, in, in Alsace, I think uh, it was uh, must have been a strange period where some, as always, they were not all heroes, you know, and some cooperated with the Germans and some uh, were resistant. And after the Second World War, it was quite... A, uh, a period where people didn't talk about it. They, they, they would think maybe subconsciously, let's not open that book because that would create many problems.
1: Mm-hmm. You're trying to reintegrate everybody into, yes. into life in peacetime and rebuilding the area. Yeah. So then you come along in 1949. Mm-hmm. You've got older siblings. Did you? Was it quite a lonely childhood in a way for you with older siblings? That's what
0: my mother told me. Uh, because she, had, she, my father worked and uh, she had to take care of a bistro. So they told me when uh, my brother and my sister went to school, I was quite lonely for two years, the first two years, upstairs in uh, my bed and uh, <laughs> they <laughs> let me get on with it.
1: And no uh, no TV
0: really. <laughs> so they prepared me for the manager's job at the time, certainly, you no. Know.
1: Well it's it's very interesting in your book that, that there's almost a theme of loneliness that comes through at times because you took some quite big jumps in your life that you began playing football in your local village and then you made your way through the uh, the ranks of football in Alsace eventually yeah. finding your way to Strasbourg a, a big club in in league 1 it's very striking now. You talk in the book about all the friends that you made at that time. When you were coming through as a young man, it was obviously a period of your life that you enjoyed very much in your 20s.
0: Yes, it was. Uh, we were a golden generation because we were the first generation who had no war and uh, we had no problem to find a job. You know, all my friends had uh, good jobs. It was optimism and uh, and uh, that was shared by everybody. It was... Uh, uh, at the time, the economy grew uh, very quickly, and uh, there was no uh, no unemployment basically, and that had certainly a uh, repercussion on uh, on the optimism uh, around. And it was a positive a positive time, as well. Uh, I must say, uh, we were still a generation where the parents told them uh, work hard. Don't talk too much. Uh, what counts is facts. Is not what is what you do, not what you say. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: especially in a village of cultures. you cannot uh, fool people. You know, they know quickly, and all the families know each other. So it, it's quite a, a completely. I think in a village at that time, you you had to to a kind of authenticity. You were who you were, you know. Today, in the city, you project yourself. You can pretend who you are. But at that time, it was more uh, you had to be uh, real.
1: That's very interesting. Now, you became quite a good footballer in your teens, but I know that you've said that you didn't have anyone coaching you until you were 19. Do you have some regret that you could have been a better player?
0: Of... uh Uh, regret, I could say yes, but uh, on the other hand, I must say, I must thank God, because uh, when you have uh, not a coach until the age of 19 and you make my career, you must say thank you very much, it's a miracle. And uh, at that time in my village, football was not serious, you know, it's not serious enough to be a job, it's football is playing, it's not working, Mm -hmm. so... Uh, that's a kind of uh, nobody could imagine around us that uh, you make a living out of a game.
1: But you made a living in Strasbourg. You started to learn how to coach. You, were, you made a big choice.
0: I was always well paid very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in amateur level, you had the same salary than the professionals at the time, basically. I was maybe uh, the best paid uh, in Alsace, you know, and uh, and it was mixed. Uh, we, we were promotional what is called when I played in Mulhouse or after at Vauban. We, were, we had to declare our income, but we had, uh, I had the same income when uh, to play basically in the top league.
1: So you're doing quite well. so you're really enjoying life. and you come, you come into coaching and then you move to Cannes. you go to the south coast. Yes. And you say in your book that it was like going to a different country.
0: It was. Because uh, Strasbourg is a more German influence, more... And uh, south of France was more Italian influence, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had to rebuild the club, to build the club uh, in Cannes with my friend Jean-Marc Guilloux. I must say, the first six months uh, in Strasbourg, I was at home everywhere, everybody knew me, and uh, so, and suddenly uh, to go to Cannes and to start it all again uh, was the first time I, uh, I left really my home.
1: You say in the book, living that isolated, solitary life where nothing was familiar was a revelation. I learned that I could live anywhere with no interference and no personal. Perfection. I was a solitary man who liked the solitude of decision-making. It's really quite striking how you, you turned being alone into a strength, into a virtue almost. Yes,
0: because I had the passion of the game, you know. And uh, in Cannes, I worked uh, eight hours a day on the pitch because I practiced with uh, the first team and uh, the academy. So uh, I was very busy physically. Uh, when I came back late at night, uh, I had only a sofa and uh, football tapes. So it, it was a, a bit... Uh, I discovered that I, I uh, could live without, without an environment that I knew where in Strasbourg I knew everybody basically. And suddenly I was in an environment uh, completely focused on football. I had friends as well in Cannes, but. It was a uh, life dedicated to to work hard, you know.
1: So you, you developed a, a reputation in Cannes as a coach and the opportunity came to take over at Nancy later on. Yes. Famously the, the club... And the opportunity
0: of, uh, in Monaco came as well from Cannes because I got a reputation down there in the south of France, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's why Monaco came later.
1: I knew of you. You had three years in Nancy. So this is the club of Platini. This is Michel Platini's club. This is his, uh,
0: Michel Platini, yes.
1: And his father was still there when you were there, is that right, running the place. I worked
0: with his father, yes, uh, with uh, Aldo. And uh, he be- became a friend, of course. And uh, he, uh, it's. Uh, I could have good football conversations with him and it allowed me as well to to uh, watch a lot, the national team, uh, the French national team, because Michel played in the national team at the time. Sometimes in the summer, he practised with us in Nancy.
1: Mm -hmm. Had he gone on to Juventus by then?
0: He was at Juventus already when I was in Nancy. Mm -hmm. And uh, because Juventus started later in the summer and in France, we started earlier with our training, sometimes he asked me what, Kind of, what is your session? Running, I don't come. Playing, I come. You know? <laughs> so sometimes he, he practised with us.
1: He, he was the, the great player of his generation, wasn't he? A truly wonderful football player. He was an unbelievable player. Mm.
0: People of the younger generations don't know him anymore, but uh, it's the best uh, vision I've seen in my life. Mm-hmm on the football pitch.
1: The player who reminded me of Platini was Fabregas.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I agree, I always said that, you know. He reminds me a bit of Platini because his head is like that, moving around.
1: Constantly looking around Constantly like a bird almost. around,
0: <laughs> exactly. And uh, Platini was like that. And uh, so that uh, they had that in common. But Platini was, uh, let's not forget, a gold scorer. He
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, was three special. times on the trot the uh, best gold scorer in Italy as a number 10. Extraordinary player.
1: And this was a time when they would only allow one foreign player. So he was, from an Arsenal point of view, he was the player who moved Liam Brady out of the Juventus team. And in a way, it was a terrible tragedy that the two of them couldn't play together.
0: Yes, of course. That would not be the case today. No. uh, uh, As well, I've heard at that time, somebody from Arsenal came to watch him Mm -hmm. uh, to play in Nancy and he never attended the stadium. Wow, that's disappointing. (laughs) You could have had both in England.
1: That would have been extraordinary. Now, Nancy was a difficult time and you worked incredibly hard, but Mm. in the third year... Uh, they went down yes. uh, into the second division. You said in your book, only I could take responsibility for defeat, which was actually physically unbearable.
0: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it still is, you know. But uh, mm-hmm. it's true. But uh, uh, I played. We played only when I arrived. We had quite. A, we had good moments in Nancy, you know. We were, uh, had some good moments, but in the last year. We had always to sell our best players, you know, and in the last year played only with used team players, and mm-hmm. uh, overall, uh, uh, Nancy is where they are today. You know, they're struggling in the second league. The miracle was that uh, we played, we played in the top league, and uh, but uh, for me, of course, it was difficult to take because. Uh, uh, not supporting defeat, you know, at, uh, at Arsenal was lucky. You win 60% of a game approximately and you draw 20 mm-hmm. and you lose about 20%, So percent, so it's one game out of five. But in Nancy it was one game out of two and sometimes two out of three. So that, huh. was, a, that was a good uh, preparation for my career.
1: So you were in pain for most of that season... <laughs> Physically, physically yes. I, I
0: thought sometimes I, I'm not made to do this job, you know.
1: Did you not sleep?
0: Not much, but uh, basically physically, I couldn't take defeat.
1: Were you smoking heavily at that time?
0: I started to smoke, and uh, the players smoked in France at that time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I started to <laughs> smoke in uh, Cannes with my friend Jean-Marc, who was uh, he, he smoked uh, forty cigarettes a day, so. I was never a heavy smoker, but I started to smoke. And to see pictures of me, even in France at that time, smoking—you were not—was uh, normal. You know?
1: Normal in the in the changing room too.
0: Not in the changing room. I didn't. I banned it in the changing room. But after the game, on the coach co- coming back, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes uh, the players smoked. You didn't see each other. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a lot of smoke so despite what happened in Nancy despite the relegation Nancy wanted you to stay five you had years another, another a five year contract another yeah. club came in for you as well and, Paris and, Saint-Germain and Monaco came in
0: and Monaco yeah.
1: what was it what were you doing that made you so in demand what was it were, were you innovative did you have, what was your reputation
0: I don't know I was the first surprised you know with mm-hmm. uh, but at that time it was not like it is today today uh, the manager is not alone with his team on the pitch i was on my own with no assistant
1: mm-hmm.
0: no nobody makes a session for you it's you and the players and uh, you make your i was a fitness coach a goalkeeper coach a assistant coach main coach and uh, so uh, I I, uh, I think it was a good for me a good education as well to prepare for the rest of my life, and uh, I had the opportunities you know I had uh, I had many clubs who wanted me, and uh, Nancy wanted me to stay for five years and I agreed at the start to stay for five years but when uh, Monaco came in, and uh, Paris Saint Germain came in, I thought. Uh, if I don't, if I turn that down now, uh, it will be difficult to find that uh, quality of club again, you know.
1: So in 87, you go to Monaco. Yeah. And you have this extraordinary first season where you win the championship. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Glenn Hoddle in the team. you got him on a free transfer from Spurs. It's always nice to pinch a player from Spurs for always. free. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, you also had, uh, am I right, that you had Mark Hately in the team too? Yes, yes. Did Hoddle play high up the pitch as a, as a 10 or did he play dropping in as a quarterback?
0: No, I played him high up the pitch and I had two good suppliers behind him. And uh, what happened as well, Glenn lost some weight. I thought uh, he was not the quickest. No. And... Uh, When he lost some weight, he suddenly became uh, physically much stronger, you know, and then he became uh, an extraordinary player. I thought, honestly, he has been voted, I think, a few years ago, a player of the century in Monaco, and we have seen seen some good players, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, he was unbelievable. Right foot, left foot, uh, Platini vision. Took
1: all the free kicks.
0: Got the free kicks with right foot and left foot and he could give his balls who just fall behind the defenders, you know. And, he had uh, a
1: way, didn't he, of stabbing stabbing exactly. at the bottom of the ball and spinning yeah. it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing uh, technician. And uh, it was it was an unbelievable perfectionist, Glenn Hoddle. Very demanding as well. A real football man, I must say.
1: And uh, you say in the book that he used to read the Bible on the coach. Yeah. Quite an unusual personality.
0: He was religious at the time. I don't know if he still is, but uh, he was—he uh, uh, was very uh, highly focused on uh, on that as well. Yes.
1: Now, in your time at Monaco, you were uh, duking it out with Marseille, the rivals from along the coast, mm-hmm. and uh, Marseille were corrupt. Uh, Marseille were cheating, and um, it seems as though. Everybody knew they were cheating. And it's quite possible that you were denied maybe one or two more championships, do you think?
0: That's what people say today, yes. And, uh, but uh, I cannot prove anything, so I don't talk about it, you know. But uh, it, was, it was not a glamorous period of French football. And uh, Marseille was one, uh, they had a great team, let's be mm-hmm. honest. Paris Saint Germain had a great team, Bordeaux had a great team. And for us, we were you were a bit in a situation where uh, England is today. You had uh, four, five big clubs, you know, and uh, it was difficult to, to fight with them. And uh, in Monaco, you had less resources, but uh, we had a good use system. And uh, when I arrived in Monaco, we never passed in a whole history one round in Europe, you know, and we started to be regularly Present, we lost the final
1: uh, in '92. You lost the final. That was a very sad story in the book because the night before there'd been a a stadium yes, tragedy, a, a drama
0: in Bastia, and uh, we had, we wanted we didn't want to play, and we lost the final against Bremen. And uh, it was a bit similar similar to Arsenal against Barcelona because uh, uh, we. Uh, We uh, didn't lose a game the whole season in the European Cup and we just lost the final.
1: Just lost the final. And disaster
0: we didn't concede a goal in the whole knockout stage and Mm -hmm. we played big teams like Madrid, like Juventus uh, and uh, Villarreal. And in the the final, we played with 10 men.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was incredibly hard. So there was suspicion. What's extraordinary about that time in Marseille was that they were... There was suspicion in other clubs' dressing rooms, wasn't there? Because you never knew if any players had been influenced by Marseille to drop their performance level. Yes. It's very difficult, the mistrust. In 1994, you had the opportunity, while at Monaco, to go and be the manager of Bayern Munich. Yes. And you decided not to take that chance. Was that a crazy moment? Should you have gone to Bayern? Franz Beckenbauer was there.
0: I should have gone. Mm Mm-hmm. I should have gone because I arrived at the end uh, after seven years. I was the longest serving manager ever in Monaco, you know, Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to extend the contract. So I was torn between my education. Uh, That means when you sign somewhere, you go to the end of it. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: uh, my realistic view was that, uh, look, uh, seven years in Monaco is quite a long time. And... uh, uh, with not, I, I made the club climb a step uh, higher up in Europe and uh, be consistent at the top level. So maybe it's time to go. And Bayern uh, was
1: one of the biggest jobs there was. and It was Trappatoni who took the job. He yes. was a, a huge coach with Juventus. It was a great opportunity missed. And then suddenly you were shoved out the door anyway by Monaco.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, in September. We had a bad start after the uh, it was '94. Uh, we had a bad start because after the World Cup, many players came back injured. Uh, we bought Sonia Anderson, who was injured, and uh, we had a bad start. And uh, uh, the year before, it was the first time I think we uh, didn't finish in the top three, and uh, so we finished seventh in the league. So it was already, you know, people were not happy. Yeah. And uh, But we played, uh, we lost in a semi-final of the Champions League against Milan. And, that was a uh, great Milan side. was the great Milan side. And uh, so it, we had still a good season, but we didn't start well. And uh, so the club knew I wouldn't extend. So they said, look, we stop here. We don't start well. <laughs>
1: Ouch. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. and So you missed Bayern Munich and ended up instead on the and other I side of the Bayern world. I missed Bayern
0: Munich and I missed then uh, Monaco as well.
1: <laughs> so you end up in Japan. You take an 18-month tour of duty, as it were, in, in Japanese football. Again, a very bold move. You find yourself another language, another culture. Yes. Uh, you and you and Borough much out there together.
0: You know, it summarizes a little bit what our job is about. It's basically a job for a single person, because you need to go anywhere in the world at some stage, uh, at, at any moment. And, uh, but on the other hand, uh, it tests you. It forces you to understand people, to adapt to different cultures. And uh, there's no better way to do that than to go to Japan when, you, when you're French.
1: Yes, I'm sure. And you found in Japan. You nearly came to Arsenal. Uh, George Graham had, had lost his job. Arsenal were looking for a manager. You met. You knew David Dean by then, and you, mm-hmm. you, know, you had a conversation. Uh, it seems they weren't quite ready to take a punt on Arsene Wenger in 1995, and it wasn't until 1996 that they, they came to
0: the, you. They tested the water.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had. Uh... Uh, dinner in the favorite restaurant of Peter Hillwood at the time with uh, Peter Hillwood and David Dean. And we talked about football, about, uh, I think they wanted to see, uh, David Dean knew me, but he wanted, of course, uh, he needed to convince Peter Hillwood that I could be the man to do the job. And so I met Peter Hillwood and uh, they went for Bruce Lee
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I was on my way to Japan, so I continued my way to Japan, and uh, uh, one year later, yes, they came uh, in June or July '96 to offer me the job. Uh, we played an away game, and uh, Danny Fisman, Peter Hillwood, and uh, David Dean came to see me.
1: They all flew to Japan?
0: They all flew to Japan.
1: It was a fantastic moment for Arsenal. Rio had done well. He Rio had a, an attacking vision of football. He signed Dennis Bergkamp, didn't quite wasn't quite the fit for Arsenal, but he left you a wonderful player, didn't he? in Dennis Bergkamp,
0: he left me a wonderful, a super wonderful player. And uh, I think I, uh, I I was grateful for that, you know. And I don't know he wasn't good. I just think. Uh, the opportunity was there for me, so I grabbed it. He grabbed it. Uh,
1: he also left you a, a wonderful assistant in Pat Rice.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I believe you know it is important when you go somewhere uh, to different cultures that you have an assistant who knows uh, the values of the club, the traditions of the club. And uh, but with Pat Rice, I got not only that. I got more than that. You know, I got a guy with a great football knowledge a huge fighter as well, and a guy who didn't want to project himself. What is very important as well when you're an assistant, that uh, uh, there is no struggle for that, you know, no fight for that. And uh, I think uh, uh, Pat Rice is a uh, hugely intelligent and he, he did understand that.
1: And when you arrived, uh, you took over on October the 1st, ninety-six. Rio had brought in three at the back and we'd had for years and years at Arsenal so much success with the back four and David Seamner before that, John Lukic. And now suddenly there was a three at the back. Sometimes he'd have Keone as a defensive midfielder. It felt like he was trying to find a way to get Bergkamp playing number 10. We had Hartson and Wright. We had Merson and Platt. We had good players, but perhaps not the... We couldn't get the balance of the team right. But you kept playing with three at the back, didn't you, for that whole of that first season?
0: Until the end of the season, yes, because I came on the 1st of October. I didn't want to disturb uh, uh, too much the system, you know, and I thought, let's see how, uh, how that will work. They knew perfectly the system, you know, and it accommodated Steve Bold, Martin Keon and uh, Tony Adams. And on the flanks, we had Winterburn and uh, Dixon. Mm -hmm. So these five, you could go to war with them, you know. Yes. uh, But uh, I came to the conclusion that if I wanted to win the league, I had to play with four. And at the end of the season, I decided, uh, it was clear in my mind since since February or March that... uh, we will not uh, beat Man United or Liverpool if we continue to play with a five, because there were more, all the back five were more defensive-minded players than offensive-minded players, you know. Mm-hmm. In a system like that, you need the wing-backs who are super offensive. But Nigel Winterburn, Lee Dixon were very clever players and very good players, but more defensive. Uh, their strength was more defensive, so I thought... If you want to win the league, we have to move to a four.
1: That's very interesting. You also brought in, before you came, uh, Patrick Vieira appeared. Yes. And uh, he made his debut against Sheffield Wednesday. Um, We're all season ticket holders here at the Tuesday Club. We all remember that debut so well. He came off the bench and immediately, apparently, was a magnificent midfield player who would receive the ball in any circumstances, marked by one, marked by two, Mm-hmm. He was able to turn, knock the ball past someone, two strides and he was gone. Suddenly, we were able to play out from the back and through midfield in a way that we'd never seen before. Did, could, did, did you anticipate that he would have the impact that he had immediately?
0: I, I must say he's one of the few players who I saw the first time play with Cannes against Monaco. I was a coach in Monaco. Straight away, I said, this guy will be a great player. You know, and uh, I must say, uh, when I see the midfielders today, what I liked what you said about is that Patrick was one of his midfielders in any position, turned the game forward, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, you don't find, uh, how many times, even last night, I watched Germany, Switzerland, how many times did the midfielder play back to a defender when he could have turned the game forward?
1: It's the thing we hate the most. It's the thing we spend more time yelling forwards than anything else.
0: Exactly, and uh, Patrick, not only had he that quality, he turned the game forward even with with two guys on his back. Because I remember uh, sometimes, you know, he had uh, Martin Keown had the ball and uh, uh, he wanted uh, he turned Patrick down to give him the ball, mm-hmm. and Patrick said, "Why don't you give me the ball?" <laughs> He said, but you're marked. Don't care about that. I will do it. Give me the ball. No matter if I have one or two players with me, give me the ball, you know. And uh, so, first of all, he wanted always the ball. Secondly, he didn't play back. He played forward He played
1: forward. And he never, ever hid. He never took up a position on the pitch where he looked like he was available, but in reality, you couldn't get the ball to him. Sometimes you see (laughs) midfield players... Hiding, whilst hiding, with their arm in the out, air, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, hiding.
0: But the hiding. You know that. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, you know the, the speed of availability of a midfielder is vital. And uh, sometimes they hide a little bit. They get. Uh, they are all. They all want the ball when you tune two up.
1: Another player. Again, we mentioned him earlier. The player who we we sit on the on the touchline on the west side. If there's a throw in on our side, the player who was always available. As if by magic was Fabregas. Uh, every yes. time he was in space. Always. It was incredible. We called him God's chess piece, but it's as if he would be moved into space by God.
0: <laughs> it, it, it is unbelievable, yes. And he had that straight away, you know.
1: He had that straight away. But yeah. we'll, we'll get to him. Vieira to Bergkamp was the most common pass between one player and another in the entire premier league in the 97 98 season no one player passed to another more than Vieira passed to Burkham. you created a pathway through the team by utilizing Vieira and by finding Bergkamp no, in that I, season I, I would say, uh,
0: that's where you know f- football is less robotic than that you know a team a team goes naturally through its strong points the way of a game Goes natural to its strong point. So if the player like Patrick Villar sees that Dennis Bergkamp is, it's a timing of uh, being available that counts. And uh, so when Dennis had that intelligence to be available when uh, he, he uh, needed to be, and Patrick could see forward. So that's why I believe uh, they found each other so well. The good players, you know, sometimes. When I brought Pires in, for example,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I give you, when uh, I play a 5 aside. side when I put T- Pires, for example, in the team of Burkamp, you have four teams of five players, you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You, you put T- Pires in the team of Burkamp, after 10 minutes, they played like they've played for life with each other, you know. Mm-hmm. And you feel straight away we bought a good player <laughs> because a yes. good player, if a good player gives the ball to a good player, <laughs> not to a bad player.
1: The same thing happened with um, with Fabregas when he first came and he was seventeen. He and Bergkamp started playing together, like almost like father and son. Exactly,
0: exactly. The good player find each other.
1: Now you put into that team in '98. You put in Marko Mars. We had a long history at Arsenal of right-footed left wingers. Had some wonderful players, Limpar Limpa and George Armstrong and Brian Marwood sure just um. before, and now and then this wonderful Dutch winger, this absolute flying Dutchman, plus the speed of Anelka and, and Ian Wright too. It was quite a fast-moving, dynamic team, not not so much a possession team, but a team that was explosive.
0: Yes, I wanted always explosive teams, and. Uh... I thought that Marco said had as well the timing of the movement of the ball. You know, today uh, you develop more players who go go ball, get ball to feet, and our evolution after was more uh, ball to feet. But uh, Marco Vermas was a guy. On the first three yards, it's like you threw him away,
1: mm-hmm.
0: couldn't stop him. Suddenly he was five meters in front of everybody. You didn't know why, but he was like. You throw him uh, forward and uh, but Then uh, uh, you had players like Petit who could give left-footed passes over the top. Yes. And uh, Vieira, Burkamp of course. And uh, I agree with you, we were speedy. We had Anelka, who was very, very quick,
1: fast. Very, very fast. fast.
0: We had Overmars, who was very fast. And then you had uh, people uh, who had a fast look. Quick vision, you know. But
1: there's something about those strikers. Henri was the same. They have this knack of catching the eye of the midfielder. So the midfielder sees them. They don't necessarily need to scream for the ball, but they catch the eye. They make sure the midfielder seen them. And then they almost trigger the pass. They make the midfielder play the pass.
0: Yes, because at the end of the day, uh, football, to make it as simple as possible, you you have a quarterback and a runner. And uh, you need one who can give the ball and one who can uh, run for the ball and uh, who can finish uh, what you started. And uh, once you have that and uh, you do that in an intelligent way, it's very difficult to stop.
1: Now, it's well known uh, that you changed the training. You brought more stretching in. You knew you had older players. You wanted to prolong them. And you changed their diet. They didn't get their Mars bars anymore. And uh, (laughs) and. I remember playing. we played Everton in the last game, that 98 season. We won 4-0, and towards the end of the game, you threw Steve Bold on as a substitute in central midfield. Uh, it was really uh, something we'd never seen before, Steve Bold patrolling the centre of midfield, and from that position played one of the best through balls that we ever saw at Highbury. Yes. For Tony Adams. Did you find that moment as, as joyful and as almost hilarious as we did?
0: I found it both, you know. (laughs) I I, I think it's, I always say that was for me the most satisfying win at Arsenal because it's my first win and I could convince people that I can win a championship. But as well, it was a sunny day in May. uh, You're crowned uh, champion and uh, it still T-Bold. The tradition, the tradition, Scored the goal, you know. Bold mm-hmm. gives to Adams and Adams scores the goal. So it was something fantastic and uh, was maybe uh, one of the best moments of my career at the club.
1: A really amazing moment. And Bold suddenly turned into Glenn Hoddle and yeah. and uh, Adams went through. Then we go to Wembley, we win the final. I remember the huge anxiety that day. The idea that we could win the double again, we won it so many years before I was a fan. But a really amazing afternoon at Wembley and a fantastic start for you. So then we go to ninety eight, ninety nine, mm-hmm. and you talk about in the book going being with David Dean and with one of David's daughters, Sasha, when you're doing a deal to sell Ian Wright to West Ham, yes. and Sasha when she realised what was happening, she, she tears came to her eyes. Yes, um, Wrighty was greatly loved. Um, and then after that he was
0: the, uh, she, Ian Wright was the idol of Sasha <laughs> and uh, by coincidence she was there because we met the directors of uh, West Ham, Ian Wright was at the table so she was very happy at the start of the, of the lunch <laughs> because uh, her, her adored player was having lunch with us and slowly she realises that uh, in fact we are here to sell Ian Wright you know
1: and he was gone. It was a shock to to many of us that you took that decision. I always wondered if you could have persuaded Wrighty to to be a support striker, come off the bench, start less games. Did you think it was impossible to persuade him impossible. to do that? Mm.
0: Impossible. Ian Wright is a, uh, an extravert to had problems, to deal with frustration, and the fact that I didn't play him in the FA Cup final never forgiven me, you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, so he was determined to leave because he was uh, he was not happy. That first of all, uh, uh, from a superstar at the club suddenly he was not a regular player anymore. It's difficult to swallow that. And uh, and uh, after, I thought I would have loved him to stay. If he had accepted this role, because he he was important in the team as well, you know. Everybody loved Ian Wright.
1: We loved him, but also we needed him that season because the players that we had—Caballero, Christopher Ray, Luis Boamorte—they were young players, not really familiar so much with the Premier League, and we just couldn't get the goals to back up yeah. Anelka. Really, Canu came later. When you look at those early draws in that season, we found ourselves at the end of the season neck and neck with Manchester United when frustratingly we might have been ahead. But you were you trying to get another striker? I remember at the time, Robbie Fowler I tried, and that's linked.
0: why I brought Kaba Diawari in, Badiawara. I remember the game, the decisive game, where we lost the championship was at Leeds, you know. Mm-hmm. He had clear-cut chances that he missed. And uh, uh, if you had a near right there, yes, maybe he would have scored. But kabad Jawara scored goals in France and uh, uh, Christopher Wray scored sometimes goals but were not completely to the level of uh, Ian Wright of course.
1: Yeah it's very difficult we drew 12 games uh, we, uh, one of my colleagues on the Tuesday club still hasn't forgiven Nelson Vivas for not marking Jimmy Floyd. Yeah Hasser but uh,
0: I haven't forgiven Haaland for kicking Winterburn on the head you know mm-hmm. it's quite
1: uh, a tough, uh, tough game up there
0: tough game up there and uh, uh, it's true that I had to bring Nelson Vivas on and Hasselbank scored on the far post after
1: so it was due to an injury to Winterburn for a, a nasty foul very nasty foul that really hurt then that season a really really painful a mm-hmm. painful semi-final and United go on and win everything and the feeling remained at Arsenal. So that was our double there it was taken from us somehow and uh,
0: that is uh, be... <laughs> the penalty of uh, Dennis Burkham, you
1: know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
0: and after that, he refused always to take the penalties. You know? Never
1: took another pen. Never took know. another pen. And then the following season, we won't dwell on these painful moments. It's very noticeable in your book that you were, we played so many cup finals when you were the manager. You seemed to Every year you seemed to take us to a final. A final was quite a rare thing for, when I was growing up. Um, and some of them went wrong. Some of them just didn't go the way we wanted them to, almost always by tiny margins. Uh, we played Galatasaray, lost on penalties. It was a excruciating evening where we had a chance from two yards out that Keown kicked straight up in the air. Then we had to go down their end, which was like a war zone, to take the penalties. Exactly. <laughs> hit the bar, and the hit referee the post. was
0: not clear on that.
1: Did you feel that that was... A, I mean, really, the other end was a much more benign environment, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but
0: they said it's for security reasons we had to go up there.
1: That seems extraordinary.
0: Because they, uh, they, they said that people could revolt if you don't go on their side.
1: Oh, really? And that had been... Uh, after, we that, in... after that
0: final, the rule has been changed.
1: Is that right? Yeah. They thought if the we don't have it... been changed because
0: the... you, after you take the toss, you know? Mm-hmm to decide where you take the penalties.
1: But the referee thought if we don't have it at their end, they might riot. So we have to have it at their end. Yes. And there'd been trouble in Copenhagen. We managed to avoid it, my friends and I. We found a pizzeria and we had a very nice evening. But I remember seeing David Dean outside our hotel and there'd been an incident with a knife and he'd been to hospital with a fan. It was quite a a difficult experience all around Copenhagen, 2000. Mm -hmm. I can understand perhaps why you left it out of the book. (laughs) I left
0: it out of the book, yes, because of uh, I cannot talk about everything, you know.
1: No, of course. Let's move on. The following year we had more disappointment. We lost to Liverpool in the cup final. I just want to ask you one question about that final. When Henri is through and Stefan Honcho is on the goal line mm. and he tries to get the ball between Honcho and the near post, he goes for a nearly impossible finish. He achieves it, but Honcho is a reflex, really, knocks it away with his elbow like a goalkeeper. The the referee seems to think the ball's hit the post and gives a goal kick. VAR gives us a red card and a penalty. Should Henri have squared to Wiltor?
0: Certainly, because uh, you know it's always the same. If you uh, don't score, you're wrong. So Mm -hmm. he he had a solution available, but was certainly more secure, and that's what he should have done.
1: I felt like when I see Henri's face after that moment, he's not really appealing for the penalty. He's got a look on his face. He was a young man still then, that tells you that he knows he's in the wrong, that he should have passed to his friend.
0: Yes, certainly, because Thierry Henry knew everything what was going on on a football pitch, you know.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, the following year, uh, that summer after that disappointment, you pulled off the great transfer coup of our time. You persuaded Sol Campbell to leave Spurs and Arsenal had all these ageing centre-backs, club legends, one and all, but we needed somebody young and strong to come in and take over at the back. You put Sol Campbell in there. We also had uh, Robert Perez, who'd had a difficult first season but was clearly immensely talented, if a little bit slight and perhaps vulnerable. to. He learnt how to win free kicks rather than injuries, didn't he? Yeah. And that team was extraordinary. Was that, do you think that was the best team in terms of a, just a one-off game?
0: Yes, I would say yes. If you think today uh, you had a good player in every single position, you know, yes. and that's where, where you achieve uh, the quality. And uh, overall, I would say uh, we, had the, we had the physical quality, we had the technical quality. We had the creativity. We had a good mixture of all the needed qualities you have. You need in a team.
1: They were a fantastic team. Most of them stayed around for another season or two, and uh, became went on to become the Invincibles. Do you, Do you lie awake at night remembering the Invincibles?
0: I uh, I look at it and I think. Uh, when you go through such a golden period, you know, where you don't lose for one and a half years, a Premier League game, it's difficult to imagine now. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only regret I have is uh, I didn't enjoy it enough, you know. I enjoyed it at the time, but I still think today I should have enjoyed it even more because suddenly the fear to lose disappears. And you just go to the game and think if we turn up, we will win the game. And... uh, that's why uh, I uh, thought that Invincible year was something with 49 games basically as a whole was something amazing because you wonder why am I paid to do this job because it's so easy and, uh, and your team owns your team owns the way you want to play, they, uh, they uh, drive for perfection, they uh, refuse to be average. They uh, want excellence. They're demanding with each other, you know. And uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing period of my life.
1: Things began to change, I think, in 2005. Football began to change. 4-4-2, which had been Arsenal's way and Manchester United's way, went a bit out of fashion. And lots of teams in the league at that time were playing five in midfield. It felt that even Patrick Vieira, with all his power, could get swamped in midfield. Mm. And the fashion began, too, in, in the Champions League to play a more short-passing possession game. Did you really make a conscious decision to move away from the real powerhouse midfield of Pala, Vieira, Edu to a more technical... Not conscious, no.
0: I just looked for good midfielders. And after, when I took Fabregas uh, to play in a 4-4-2 central defensively midfield, he was not his strength, you know. Mm-hmm. So I had to put uh, one more midfielder in to give him a chance to survive. Uh, And uh, that's why uh, when you played in the Champions League, it's true what you say is that uh, the teams went, you you had the feeling that if you didn't dominate the midfield, you had no chance in the Champions League. And Mm -hmm. uh, I went then for one more midfielder. uh, Because uh, before you had the powerhouses like uh, uh, Vieira, Petit, you know, they could do... The defensive job after after when you have Fabregas, we need it a bit to strengthen a bit uh, the midfield.
1: So, I want to fast forward you to uh, the San Siro in 2008 when Arsenal won 2 0. Uh, AC Milan were the reigning European champions. I don't think at that time that any English team had won away at AC Milan. No, uh, I was in the away end, high up in the away end behind Perspex screen. Um, at the end of that game, Arsenal won 2-0. The Milan fans that remained uh, gave Arsenal a standing ovation. It was a standing ovation mm. all around the ground. All the player, the fans in front of us who'd been giving us all kinds of abuse throughout the game turned and applauded us. It was a really remarkable performance. Um, Diaby played on the left because Rosicky had been injured. We had Alexander Kleb, who was a brilliant technician, did you think that team could have been something really special?
0: I think, yes. We had. Uh, I said that uh, in my book as well, you know, Arsenal uh, today, the dominance of uh, the Arsenal period is until uh, uh, 2006 in the mind of people. But after, we played some fantastic football and uh, we couldn't finish a job sometimes in Europe. And after... Uh, in the league as well, because we finished, I think, two times second after that, and uh, with less resources. We still played, I think, football with top quality and we had top quality games in Europe as well. We won in Madrid uh, in 2006, but after we won in Milan uh, uh, against uh, AC Milan, against Inter Milan, we had some fantastic wins, but uh, it's not in the memories anymore because it's not crowned by titles.
1: Well, that game is certainly in my memory. Also in my memory from 2008 were the terrible injuries that we had. We lost Van Persie, we lost Rizitski in January, and then we lost Eduardo. Um, do you think you should have signed Elka from Bolton?
0: Maybe he wanted to come back. Maybe it was a mistake. I, I, I wanted always to give a signal to the players... But once you leave the club, there's no way back. <laughs> it was, I felt that uh, they would then have an hesitation to leave, you know. So I didn't give them the feeling, okay, I go somewhere else. If I do, it doesn't work, I come back. And uh, so that's why I didn't do it. And uh, overall, maybe I should have done it. And uh, Niklas uh, still scored 125 games in the Premier League, I think something like that, you know, mm. so... Uh, he could have helped us.
1: Yeah, you had great, as you say, great matches. We beat Barcelona in 2011. We had disappointments in some games, but, but let's finish up our by talking about those last few years when you signed Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez, and we we had the chance to win the league, didn't we, in 2016? Perhaps we should yeah. have done. We won those FA Cups. Did it give you more pleasure in a way to return to winning ways, to return to trophies than it had at the beginning? It had been a long, hard road paying back the stadium.
0: Yes. uh, I think uh, people after a while, they say, "Okay, you're in the top four, but uh, you don't win the European Cup and you don't win trophies anymore. So I thought uh, the the fact that you could come back and to win the FA Cup 14, 15, 17, you know, and... uh, we had good teams and uh, we could have won the championship in 2016. We finished second in the league. Personally, I think uh, that year Tottenham had a good opportunity to win the league.
1: They did, and it was great that they didn't. Um, yes. There was one game, I'll say, in that year. At the end of 2015, we had more points than anyone else in the calendar year. We beat Manchester City. We were the cup holders. We had Ursa, we had Sanchez, we had a terrific team. And then we lost four 0 to Southampton on Boxing Day, yeah. And, and we had a capacity in those days for a heavy defeat, for the wind to blow the wrong way. What was it? Why, why did that happen?
0: We were more vulnerable defensively, you know. I remember that day, Murta had a bad day, and uh, we realised today that Southampton had a good team.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the guy who killed us on the day was Mane,
1: right? He'd have been a good signing.
0: He could have been a good signing. You know, we should have signed him when he was in Mets, mm-hmm. when he played the Olympic Games uh, with Senegal in London. That's why we should have signed him. And uh, that's why I think we had Lana, they had, had Mane, we had, had fantastic players at uh, Southampton. And uh, I think we had a good win on the 23rd of uh, December at home in a difficult game.
1: Yeah, Man City.
0: Man City and we went to Southampton and we collapsed because we were physically a bit jaded, maybe. And as well, uh, uh, Wojciech, I think, played Chesney. I had a bad day on the day we conceded some bad goals.
1: Mm. I won't go, I don't want to finish for for you on a painful. (laughs) <laughs> and a painful memory.
0: Well, still, you know, it's amazing when uh, I talk about it, the pain comes out again and yeah. the memories come out up again.
1: They really do. And you talked to right at the beginning about your father keeping his pain and his secrets right inside mm-hmm. and the feeling that the people around you when you were a boy kept their pain inside. And there's a feeling I have with you that that is a habit that you've carried your whole life. Yes, it's true. You don't let it out in your book. I feel bad to bring it to you now. No <laughs> let's problem, finish no on that amazing final when uh, Alexis Sanchez was wonderful against Chelsea. Was that a real joy to see to win that match? In that, that was fantastic
0: because let's not forget that uh, uh, we played Man City in the semi final. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Man City was a great side, you know, we're better than today. And we played Chelsea, we were champions. And once a team has won the championship, they go in the cup final. Yeah, they, very they were going for the to,
1: double.
0: By going for the double, it's very difficult to stop, you know. And uh, the fact for me, it's one of the great victories of Arsenal during my stay. And uh, it, it was a bit, football is sometimes special you because you think it is uh, on the day we had all the problems at the back. Saka had not played one game That's right. in the whole season. He played exactly. one game. It was a final of a cup yeah. against the best team in the country.
1: It was extraordinary against Costa.
0: And uh, it was extraordinary, you know. And we had Holding, I think, as well played. Yeah, and, just a
1: boy. Uh,
0: and uh, so that, that was uh, absolutely fantastic. It was a fantastic day. One of my happiest days at the club.
1: It was a great day. One of many FA Cup wins. Arsenal, I think, I, I would love to sit here um, and talk to you all day long about Arsenal and there are so many other things. Yeah, but, I um, think
0: you know more about Arsenal than I do.
1: I think, I, well, I'm obses- I'm an obsessive about an Arsenal's concern, um, but the contribution that you made, the work, the hard, hard work for so many years that you put into our club um, is hugely appreciated Um Never, never underestimate our gratitude. Uh, And and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. All the success for the season. Good luck with your book, which I think is going to be a big seller. I don't know,
0: but I just wanted to give an honest, uh, short experience of my uh, special period of my life.
1: Well, you've certainly achieved that. And good luck with your continued work with FIFA.
0: Thank you very much. Bye-bye.